you know, the days when lawyers and communicators get together and say, oh, let's put it out on a Friday at five or or let's just put this vanilla statement out. None of that works anymore. That's Judy Smith, crisis management expert, professional fixer and the inspiration for the popular TV show Scandal. It takes bad news uh, travels internationally about somebody said 18 or 19 seconds, right? It takes you that long to track down the client and call and try to figure out what we can say. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Judy Smith to discuss the art of crisis management, particularly as it pertains to entrepreneurs and law firm owners today. So I would say to all the, you know, the legal folks out there, the bar is higher for you guys now. There's no more is expected of you. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Judy Smith is well known as a professional fixer. In fact, her company specializes in crisis management. But what do those terms really mean? Well, let's see. They mean no sleep. That'd be one. Bags under your eyes. No. Um, what it means is you have an opportunity, I think, to provide um, good strategic advice and counsel to, you know, a whole host of, you know, corporations, associations law firms across the board. And I got to tell you what I really love about it is I never, ever get bored, right? Because the problems are just across sector. Like you could be dealing with a product recall at nine o'clock, 1030, the board has decided to replace the CEO, uh, 1230, a company just got wind that's going to be a shareholder derivative suit. I mean, it's all, I, I never, never, ever get bored with. And on that note, I, I guess you kind of gave the answer, but I am curious as to what would make somebody want to do this because it's probably calls at the 11th hour. It's, you know, you never know what to expect. Even before you and I jumped on today, you mentioned you already had dealt with five different crises. Yeah. Well, I think you have to have a, a love for it. I learn a lot, right, in dealing with um, issues. And really what we try to do is to help people um, and organizations mitigate risk and see around the corner, right, before, before the problem comes. You know, I know most of your listeners, you know, some of them uh, work with, you know, work in law firms and have their law firms. And one of the things that we've seen, like it has grown tremendously, is when clients come to law firms, they want service, not just legal service, but across the board, right? And so the number of legal uh, referrals and cases that we have been brought in has increased, I would say, in the last 
two years because they want somebody that can solve the whole problem, right? Not just legal, but okay, if I do file suit, right, who's going to do the press for it? How am I going to get my message out first? If the other person responds, not just in the court of law, but what are we going to say, right? What's our message? How do we communicate to our stakeholders? So I would say to all the, you know, the legal folks out there, the bar is higher for you guys now. There's no more is expected of you. Agreed. And actually on that note, when you went to school, I know you graduated, you earned a bachelor's in public relations, but what inspired you to go to law school? All right, now don't laugh at this. I'm just going to tell you the truth on it. Somebody told me I argued well, right? And I thought that was a compliment. Really, it wasn't. It was, I was just getting on the guy's nerves and he said, you should try to go to law school. And actually, um, I loved it. But what I did was I stuck my toe in the water. I did um, a paralegal degree first and I really, I really liked it. I like the the concept of justice. I like arguing and presenting uh, my point of view. And of course, you know, we have to win. There's no doubt about that. Um, so I, I, um, I like all of that. And the other thing that I found that I didn't know at the time, because when I came out of law school, I, um, I was a prosecutor, but the, the surprising thing is how helpful the law has been in the area of communications, right? Because you have to be so careful when you are in a legal situation, what you are communicating. Um, you can't go back and say, I, I didn't mean it, or you take it back. And so you really have to be careful about what you say. Uh, and oftentimes is, is, all of you know that when you're dealing with the law and the facts, sometimes when you first start a case and you have to say something, you don't know all the facts, right? So you got to give yourself a little, what's the word, a little wiggle room there in terms of what you, what you want to say publicly, basically. And then I know once you graduated, you had, had several stints in, in government and working with the White House and then the Bush administration and so on. What, what was that experience like? Oh, for, for a uh, poor girl from Washington, D.C., it was great. It was absolutely awesome. I remember getting a call from, um, uh, from Marlon Fitzwater, and I um, thought that it was a joke that my, uh, one of my best friends, um, I call her Beanhead, and she calls me Pocahontas. And I thought she was paying a joke, right? I've noticed since I was four. And... Um, I said, oh, sure, this is Marla Fitzwater, and you're calling to talk to me. And I said, yeah, tell Bean here to forget it. I'm not going to fall for it. So I hung up on Marlon. And then he called back, and I hung up on him like twice. And um, I remember going and talking to him, and I said, now, you sure you have the right Judy? There's a lot of Smiths out here. You could get confused. I said, I don't have any money. My parents don't have any money. I have no political ties. And he said, no, I'm sure. And he had gotten some references from other jobs. But it was great. I'm going to tell you what is so amazing about it. You are truly at the center of the universe, right? And you have to have the ability, just like you do in law sometimes, is to be able to make 
quick decisions based on the facts that you have them. Because somebody somewhere is going to tweet about it, go on the air about it, write about it. And so you have to be able to weigh your words and messaging uh, quickly. So I think it was um, it was an amazing experience. It was a good opportunity for me to use a combination of law, of um, public policy, and communications, I think. And I know you mentioned technology. I'm curious, like, how technology has changed the nature of your work. So almost like with the 24-hour news cycle, social media, and so on. Oh, it's a killer. It's painful. It's painful. It's painful. It's interesting because it's totally changed the dynamic, right? You know, the days when lawyers and communicators get together and say, oh, let's put it out on a Friday at five or or let's just put this vanilla statement out. None of that works anymore. I mean, think about it. By the time that somebody tweets, right, it takes somebody told me this, it takes bad news uh, travels internationally about somebody said 18 or 19 seconds. Right. It takes you that long to track down the client and call and try to figure out what we can say. So I think it really has pushed the envelope for, I think, all of us to be more thoughtful. Right. Like, should we respond? Is it just going to pass in 15 minutes and there'll be the next right thing that's that's hot on Twitter? Um, Who responds? Do you even respond whatsoever? So. It's all those different things that you have to weigh. And really, who's driving the traffic? Does it affect your core brand and reputation? Because here's what we do know. You can't respond to everything out there. If that could keep you busy, I don't know how many days, right? It's too, it's too much. It's too much. So from that perspective, how do you know? How do you know when to respond or how you should respond? Because I imagine a lot of times with, you know, depending upon the situation, it's very difficult. It is. I feel like if it's something that is really attacking your core brand, right, as a company, or if it's attacking your uh, integrity, say, as an individual, those kinds of things, I know for me, you would want to, you would want to respond to. But the vehicle you use is critical. I remember it was a, a company that had issued an apology in about 10 tweaks, right? That was certainly not the right vehicle to do that because it um, it was too hard to it was too hard to follow, basically. After about the second tweet, people were like, forget it. So uh, I think in this day and age, you want to determine what vehicle you want to use. And through your career, I know you've worked with you know, notable clients, like everyone from Monica Lewinsky to Wesley Snipes to Michael Vick to Sony Pictures Entertainment and so on. And I'm sure several that you can't even mention. But you know, looking back at these, is there one that stood out in particular that you think really helped to define the work that you do? Maybe I would say maybe Monica Lewinsky. The only reason why I say that was it was the first big case on a national platform where it was that combination of politics, of the presidency at stake, right, of legal ramifications, people going to jail, 
uh, public policy. You had grassroots groups, you know, both sides having their opinion. So that was probably a big one because it was just, it was a combination of the perfect storm. And it's, it's interesting considering what the crises of years past compared to what they are today, you know? Yes. Somebody had asked me about that the other day, right? And um, it was, I tell you what we were talking about. It was uh, scandals involving sex, right? And um, somebody was saying, well, what do you think has it changed? And it, the, how the conversation came up was it was a politician who had admitted that he had an extramarital affair. And really, it was just a day story, right? And people just, he said it, he went right back to the issues of the campaign. And it just didn't have the effect that it had, say, in the Gary Hart era, uh, you know, or times like that. And I think for what we do, right, whether you are in law, you're in crisis, if you're a reporter, any of that, one of the things that I have found that is critical for me and what I do is that you have to know where culture is, right, where issues are and where things are going to land when you when you talk about them. For many law firm owners, it can be difficult to prepare for an unknown crisis. I asked Judy to share how she recommends putting together a crisis management playbook. First of all, your business is so competitive, right? The second thing that you want to think about as well, not only is it competitive, but it is starting to really um, have a lot, a lot of tech intervention in law. And so you want to think about, I think, how that's going to affect the kinds of services that you offer. But yes, I think as, as lawyers, you definitely want to have a playbook. Look, there's some crisis that you can't avoid. Like we, right, you couldn't say, let me do a playbook for COVID, right? We just, we just didn't know. But I do think that if you look at your clients, right, and you as a law firm, that the general things that you can prepare for that you know that's coming down the pike, right? So if a client called you and there's a crisis, let's just use this. Do you have a crisis firm, right, that you, that you are able to work with? Your client that you have, one of the things that you want to do is to identify, even if it's not why they hire you, because they're going to come to you for this, I guarantee you, is look at the risks, right, that they might have as a a client. And also, too, what about their key stakeholders? What about a spokesperson? Is that you, right? Or are you able to do that? Do you need media training? All of that, and you also want to have, when you were talking about a playbook, you want to have your messaging, right? I think more than anything, because of, of what you were saying, the field is so crowded, right, in communications. And so you want to make sure that you have clear communications of the message that you're trying to, uh, to get across. That, I think, is, I think is, is critical. It's got to be quick, concise. All of those things. You need a playbook. Now, 
I'm sure there's people listening. They're going to nod to the things that you're saying, but because they can't anticipate an unknown crisis or what have you, they may put it on the back burner. What, what are some examples you see of clients you've worked with that didn't prepare for this proactively that later were in a very difficult position as a result? Oh, please don't put it on a back burner. If you guys hear anything from me today, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Well, I think it catches you off guard, right? So one of the exercises that we do with attorneys is with their clients, let's identify the risk. So I'll give you an example. There was a company who um, manufactured toys, right? And uh, we were brought in by a lawyer. And what happened was in uh, the factory that they had, it was out of the country, there was um, an accident there. Uh, two people got injured and there was a fire in the, um, you know, in the manufacturing plant. Right. So to me, that was uh, one that you could identify where if you were manufacturing something, you know, something is likely to go wrong. Right. Say if it's a consumer product, you're selling it. What if it's like a little toy in cereal. I mean, you know that it's a high degree of something going wrong. So I just would encourage all of you to think about that when you are thinking about the services that you provide your, your clients with. What, what about social issues? I know that this has been a tricky one. I speak to a lot of firm owners where they don't know exactly how to weigh in or should they weigh in. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm weighing in. <laughs> I'm weighing in hard. I'm going to weigh in. Look, I think what you want to think about uh, to help your clients is where do they stand on the issues, right? And I think a good leader, whether you are operating your own law firm or you're dealing with a client, you want to get a sense of where they stand on social justice, I think that when um, the social justice movement started recently, there are a lot of organizations where they were writing checks, right? And sort of just what we had anticipated, we had told our clients, you don't want to do that. Because really, I think fundamentally, what people are really looking for is systematic change right to racial injustice that's what that's what people are looking for not sort of a quick band-aid approach how are we really going to make long-lasting change that can that can help put our society and our culture in a better position than we are now so i think any way that you can um voice that that is a direction that that one should go um, I think that would be helpful. And it's a lot to, a lot to go with that, right? From, from training to, to making uh, changes in um, how you hire and how you pay people and, you know, all of that. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's not work that's going to be done in six months, right? It's a, it's a process. It's a process. Do you believe it's important to get that out publicly in terms of like what a firm or a business is doing? I think it's important to, if you have action, yes, right? I think you have a lot of stakeholders. I think most employees are pretty clear about the kind of culture that they want to work in. 
And so I think it's important to a lot of groups. I think it's important to employees. I think it's important to the public um, to know where you stand as a company, right? It's probably important to uh, your shareholders. It's probably important to people who buy products as well. Now, separate from social issues, I, I, I do want to hit on cancel culture. I want to get your thoughts on this. Do you think that the pendulum ever slings too far the other way? Because I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs that are they're almost walking on eggshells with, with a lot of the things that they've been doing in their organizations in fear of just a massive revolt. It's hard. It's no, I, I understand it. If anybody out there is listening, I understand it. It is really, really hard. Um, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You got to weigh what you say and how you say it. But no going in is just like with anything, council culture, everybody's not going to agree with you, right? And everybody has, uh, everybody has an opinion about things. So, yes, I mean, how you say it and what you say, you take that risk. The other thing that you want to think about, oftentimes it's, does that have to be the vehicle that you use to communicate, right? If you have something substantive to say and you really are trying to communicate a message, I think you just really want to think about what's the best vehicle. Maybe it doesn't have to be social media. And Judy, actually on that note, what have you seen as some of the most common, let's say, PR mistakes that people make, you know, either because their gut reaction is polar opposite to how to best manage a crisis or just mistakes overall? I think that when you see something on social media, in particular, you know, if it's about you or your organization, you take it personally, right? You're, as you should be, you're angry, you're upset about it. And so instead of looking at who's driving traffic, is it trending? How long do we think it's going to last? I think people immediately feel like they have to respond to every single thing and you don't. You honestly don't. So trying to get people to restrain themselves from that would be uh, uh, would be great. Any other any other common mistakes? I would probably say that's the main one. I think the other one, another common mistake I see. I always say this, but it's so true, and it's the same thing with lawyers. Oftentimes, you don't we don't get as lawyers get the all the facts from our clients, right? And I always say that truth comes in installments. And so you just kind of want to make sure that you are very, uh, you're very careful. Uh, you're very careful about that. I was, so we did this focus group one time and uh, it was about, you know, lawyers and some of the folks at the focus group said, yes, the lawyers come right out and say, my client is innocent and we're going to, you know, fight this and we're going to win. And then they said that they look it up and they see about a month later, there was a plea deal, right? And, and guilty. And the focus group was saying that, you know, they uh, felt that that was not right. I said, well, they could have felt that at the time, right? And as facts appear, you change your mind of what, you know, your strength of your case, basically. And in having worked with many business leaders, have you found that there are any certain like predictors of how well somebody will handle a crisis, like whether it's certain attributes or just you know anything at all? I think leaders who are very clear 
about who they are and what they stand for. I think leaders also who don't uh, heavily engage in uh, what I call group speak, right? Because I think that sometimes when you're looking, a leader is looking to get an advice and opinion, people just sort of go right with the group instead of just really standing up and saying what you honestly, what you honestly feel. And I think a good leader has to have the ability as well in situations like this to make the best decision for the company and the organization, even if they are somehow, you know, personally involved in it or personally uh, offended by it in some way. And, Judy, I know you know, given your reputation now with your consulting firm, I'm sure you have plenty of opportunities for business. How do you decide which cases you take on and which ones you avoid? That's a good question. I would like to say I had a three-step process, but honestly, it's sort of like, oh, I'm not sure I don't really want to do that. It's really, this is going to sound so like scandalish, but <laughs> it really is a, a gut feeling. Right. And also, too, I don't want to take um, people's money if I really can assist and and help. And so if I don't think I can really move the needle, if I don't think I can make a difference. Right. I, I won't. I remember when I first started out in my business, probably like most folks, you take on you know, any case and right, you're trying to keep the lights on. And um, when I first started on the the crisis side, I would take things that were non-crisis, right? Oh, we want you to write up this brochure or we want you to promote a play or, you know, and anything people said, I'm like, yes, yeah, sure. I can do that. I'm great at that. But really what I found out was when I stopped doing all that other stuff and really focused on what I was good at and I found that out just by doing it, then that's when things started to to soar. And I would encourage all of you, right, to try to really find your sweet spot, whatever that may be. It might be mediation, it might be litigation. It might be just a, you know, a certain area on the criminal side or the civil side, but you, you want to spend some time finding that because that's when I think it makes a, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in two areas. One, you'll kick butt at it. That's number one. But the second area that, that makes a difference in is that you'll find the skill sets that you are really that you're really good at. And that's that's rewarding, I think. Have you ever had situations when you're handling, you know, a crisis or an issue that kind of blows back at you just just for being involved? No, but I tell you what I have done. I fired clients before. I'm sure that some of you have had that experience. Look, people come to to us as lawyers and as communicators because they want advice and counsel. And um, if, if clients feel as that their strategy is going to work, right. And, you know, not following sort of the playbook and, and think that they have a better strategy, then that's not, that's not a partnership, right. That's not a workable thing for people to be successful at. 
So no, there's, there's clients that I've walked away from plenty of time. Now, I heard that one of the hardest lessons you had to learn in crisis management is that not everything is fixable. Tell me about that. That's true. It's painful. It's painful. It is true. Well, I tell you, I, I tell you why it's painful is if people, if somebody comes to you, it's just in the law, right? And they give you a case and you feel like you can win and for whatever reason, it doesn't line up, right? And you are surely disappointed in it. But yeah, there's some things that just are not fixable. And no matter, no matter what you do, right? People's opinions may not change about it. This is, uh, this is an old one, but I don't know why this is popping into my mind. Was it Casey Anthony? Is that right? She had drowned her kids, right? And she got off, right? So what's interesting about that, if you ask people today about it, even if she was found not guilty, people still believe that she did it. So it, uh, you, can't, you can't fix that. You just, it's not possible. It's not possible. There's some things you just have to leave where they are. That's a hard lesson. That's a hard lesson, I think. And actually, on that note, how do you know, and like how, you know, whether it's your experience or you know, to a lawyer who's listening, that you know, a battle is not worth fighting, you know, or a hill that's not worth dying on? Oh, God, that's another lesson, too. I'm laughing because I remember uh, one time a colleague in mine, we said, we're, we're going to try to take the hill. We went to go try to talk to a client. It was about 11 o'clock at night. We felt so passionate about it. And for about two days, it was successful, and, and then it and then it wasn't right. And that was that was one of those lessons where it wasn't a battle that was worth that was worth fighting for. I think sometimes you don't know it honestly until you just don't know it. But you should pick and choose, right? One of the things that as I've gotten older is that I try to look at the person that I'm dealing with, right? Before I sort of pick and choose that battle or the hill to die on, because you will learn a lot from who you're dealing with, how they're going to react to it. Are they really going to change? Are they going to hear and see what you're trying to say? And if the answer is no, and you made one shot at it, don't die on that hill. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's a deep slide down. I tell you, I've slid down that hill before. You don't want to do it. <laughs> and I know one of the many claims to fame that you have is you were the inspiration for Olivia Pope on the on the TV show Scandal. So I'm curious, one, how does that happen? And two, like, you know, what's that like to see your work inspire a show? It was It was interesting. I think what was... A few things about the show. I would say one, I think in a lot of ways, showed the collective power of the world in which we live in. And and here's what I mean by that. was It was the first time that an African-American woman was a lead in television, I think in about 40 years, 35 or 40 years, right? And I didn't do that. I mean, I had a hand in it, but who really did it was the 10 million people that watched every single week and said, we like what we see. And so that told the entertainment industry that we need to see more of that. 
right? And so um, for that, I think uh, I, I think it, I think it was good. I also think too, which I didn't. I have to tell you this. I didn't have a full understanding of it then, but I do have a better understanding of it now. Is the importance of um, images and what people see and how it resonates and how it's important to see images that are that are reflecting who we are. And you know, of course, all the other stuff that you know because you know me that I didn't do, like have an affair with the president, that didn't happen. Because I'm a lawyer, I care about my bar license, so I didn't drag any dead bodies from crime scenes. I do wear white, and I'm not going to deny that. That's my favorite color. And then, um, you know, it was always um, the character wearing the white hat. And, you know, I would like to, to think that the kinds of things that I do, I always try to lead it to uh, some positive change or some positive outcome. In, in your line of work, which was, as we've discussed, I mean, it's, it's very unpredictable. I imagine it's, you know, long hours and late hours. It's probably consistently stressful of, of all career paths that you could choose. But what are some of the habits that you have that help to keep you on track and engaged and just so consistent for so many years? So here's a few things I do. I take 30 to 40 minutes to myself every day. And what I usually do is walk. There's something nice about, you know, being outside in nature. I'm going to have to figure it out now because it's getting a little cold. But um, walking is good. The other thing that I do is um, every night, and I usually do the whole week on Sunday, I try to make sure that I map out my day ahead so that I'm not waking up in the morning feeling like I don't have an agenda for the day. It's not just scheduling, but it's what do I proactively want to get uh, get accomplished. The other thing that I do is I do something that is not on the schedule. Like every day I try to at least make one or two phone calls that I wanted to reach out, right? A colleague who I haven't talked to you know, in a while, that sort of thing. The other thing that I do uh, as well is I try really hard, which I hope everybody does. I try hard not to work on the weekends. Now, if I have to, I will. Obviously, I, I worked on Saturday and half a Sunday this weekend, but I try not to. Um, I try not to do that. And then I make sure that I am taking care of myself from a health perspective. Oftentimes, and you know, lawyers, we all have these stressful jobs, right? So you want to understand you have to take care of yourself first before you can help all of those other people that you're trying to help. How do you, how do you define success? Everybody has to do that for themselves. I think for me, if I feel as if A, I've, for work, if I've done a good job and I've done my absolute best, then I feel like that is successful. The other way that I feel like work is successful, if we have achieved the client's objective, because what I do is I start the business from the back end. And by that, I mean, when I sit down with clients, 
I'll say, what is your end game, right? Where do you want to end up? What's the outcome you want to see? And then I develop a strategy and work my way back toward that. So um, that to me increases your, you know, increases your level of success, basically. I don't know. You've got two sons. For the, for the parents listening, I've got a daughter of my own. Like, what, what lessons are you teaching them in this world? Like, how do, you, how do you, you know, whether it's to keep some of the noise out or what, but I imagine just, you know, seeing the impact that that's making on them when they're either tuning into the news or social media. Like, how, how are you helping to keep them kind of, I guess, focused, if you will? Yeah, and it's so hard, to your point. I mean, given COVID, uh, the way that I, I try is really is to constantly remind them just a few things that, you know, that you are enough in this world, right? That you have to live for yourself, not for other folks. I try to make sure that they understand that you need to treat yourself and everybody else with a level of decency and understanding and respect. And um, you can't do anything halfway. It's either all or nothing. Right. And so if you decide to do something, give it your all. That's the that's the best way to uh, to achieve success, I think. And Judy, as we come to a close, this being the the game changing attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? You know, I think a game changer is somebody that changes the standard or industry or culture in some way or fashion, in an impactful way or or fashion. And I would say to all of you that are listening, each and every one of you have the ability to be a game changer, right, in in what you do. It's no doubt about it. But that's what I would say it, it, it means to me. I want to give a huge thank you to Judy Smith for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Judy mentioned that bad news gets across the globe in 18 seconds. So it's important to be ready when a crisis strikes. And you must determine the right strategy in the vehicle for each specific crisis communication. Not everything can be handled in an email or a tweet. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Judy Smith, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time, and we'll be speaking to founder and CEO of Torque Law, Reza today about his personal experience of living the American dream. To be able to come to a foreign land and to provide opportunity and safety and security to your children who then go on to get an education, build successful careers. I mean, for me, that would be a dream for my own children and I can't imagine how they feel. And so a lot of what our core values, our principal values that we believe in at the firm really have to do with working hard, commitment, doing the right thing, all the things that, I, that you know, we watch my parents teach us as we were growing up. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.